Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is Monday, the 2nd of the 8th. We're here on a Monday because it's a bank holiday, which is apparently something we do now. I think we've done this consistently over the last while. Can't really remember, actually. No, I think we've been consistent in at least two bank holidays. Absolutely. So... The Zappone thing is still ongoing, and now it looks like Fine Gael is uh, going to turn itself. Yeah, it, 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 um, there's there's all sorts of internal sh- there's shenanigans going on. Ministers leaking, junior ministers leaking the leak. Everybody's desperately speculating on who the minister might be. The Taoiseach, obviously, not taking it terribly seriously, the fact that there's somebody at Cabinet. It, it feels like, Gary, you might have sensed the chronology a little bit better than Amelia. It was almost like he was literally at the cabinet table, leaking it as as they spoke. I mean, it was a fairly prompt leak. Yes, I think it was still while the, the cabinet was ongoing. So we talk about that. The government has uh, decided it's going to spend the summer dedicating itself to researching the costs and benefits of a four-day week. Doesn't that sound lovely, Michael? It sounds like why is what it sounds like to me, but there you go. Because, you know, Michael, someone in government went, civil servants... They work so hard. If only there was a way to give them an extra day off a week. Well, yes, and I'm sure all the civil servants listening, and we have, I'm sure, some, and we think they're doing a great job. And if they can get their work done in four days, then why not? You may have seen some reports in the Irish Times, but starting in the Irish Independent, saying that uh, Ortie is going to need to be rescued if its funding issues are not addressed, Michael. Well, you know, Gary, sometimes you might come across out in the broad ocean a rusting hull. Been there a long time. It may at some stage have been a useful, productive vessel, but now it's holed beneath the waterline. It's seeping oil. The crew are no longer the kind of crew that could get a job on another ship. And if they could, they'd have to do for, for an awful lot less money than they're getting now. And you look at it, Nick, well, we could tow it into port and we could spend a lot of money doing it up. But sometimes, Gary, the thing about a, a sinking ship is maybe the best thing is let it sink. So the report goes on to say that uh, if Ireland is to continue to have an indigenous public service broadcasting ecology with a sustainable commitment to news, Irish original content and genre diversity for multiple audiences, oh. funding will have to be secured via a long-term reform of the licence fee and a short-term lifeline in the interim. The alternative may be to accept that public service broadcasting in its current form is no longer sustainable and that the government should no longer seek a means to ensure it. Now, I'm going to give you just some numbers, Michael, here. Okay. Over the last 10 years, RTE has lost about 90 million. Okay. The last 10 years, it's only been in surplus two or three years. And one of those was because they sold a chunk of land. Right. I mean, you might ask, Michael, why they don't sell more chunks of land, given how much prime real estate they own. But that's beside the point. So they lost, in the last 10 years, 90 million. In that same period, what they got from the license fee, Michael, that is apparently not enough and is leading to all of these terrible things, they got one point... 8 billion I think from the license fee and then when you take in the um, the the commercial revenue uh, putting that aside so advertisement all of that sort of stuff RGE over that period has brought in about 3.5 billion euro right now RGE Michael is not it's a large organisation on an Irish scale 
But if you're taking in three and a half billion in a decade, you should probably be able to uh, keep your head above water. I'd be curious, and well, neither of us know the answer to it, but I'd be curious to know why, other than the year when they sold the land, and the other couple of years where they weren't in deficit, what was it about those years that uh, that meant that they were making money? Were they World Cup years, or where they had particularly strong advertising revenues or something? There you go. Um, I love the use of the word ecology. Yes, it's, it's, it's beautifully with it in a corporate sense. So the report then goes on and it talks about... It, well, sorry, let me rephrase that. The reporting of the report goes on because I can't find the original report. I'm not sure it's actually publicly available. And the Independent and the Times don't give the name of the report, mm-hmm. merely that the report was sent to the government because the BAI sent it to them. Who commissioned it? It sounds like the BAI commissioned it. It doesn't actually say, but the BAI have commissioned previous reports from these people, so it would make sense. But the report goes on to about, you know, the many sacrifices RTE has made, Michael, to cut costs over the previous years. Right. But what I thought was quite interesting, I this this report was done by a media consultancy firm. So I thought, Michael, I, you know, would trundle on over and have a look and see who these people work for. Oh, yeah. And they do have a very nice array of clients from the BBC, Channel 4, you know, Discovery, ESPN, RTE, Sky, Virgin. R- RTE, did you say, Gary? I did, Michael. RTE, company that they're saying needs to be given more money, mm. is a client of theirs. Gosh. And that was, where did that appear in the report? Was it in the in the footnotes, or, or was it one of those headlining things as a declaration of interest? Oh, well, it didn't appear in the report, Michael. Oh. In the, well, it didn't appear in the reporting on the report. As I said, I haven't seen the original report. Well, that's an interesting typo, because I'm sure that's all it was, if it wasn't in the report. And we are indeed talking not about the report, but reporting of the report. If it were to be the case, that would be obviously a typo, because that's not the kind of oversight you do by in full conscience or deliberately. Everybody said, well, we must include that. That would be normal. It is very interesting this report comes out and it argues for exactly what RTE had been arguing with the government for. Reform, Michael, because reform is a lovely word, reform of the licensing laws so that um, less people can avoid them. You know, maybe you want to just put it on electronic goods, a point of sale, something like that. Gary, slightly not to the point, but I'll ask you anyway. Imagine RTE is not as it is today, right? But it's a public broadcaster which is dedicated to producing regular half-hour pieces on the life and times of Ayn Rand or a 14-part documentary on the genius of Milton Friedman and maybe a biopic on Tom Sowell or something like that. And you, you get the sense of what I'm talking about, you know. And we were all watching. Said, Gosh, did you see that wonderful thing they did on Austrian economics last week? Even if it was like that, do you think that there is still today a decent argument for such a thing as public service broadcasting supported by a license fee? I think I would struggle to point at enough that RTE does better than its purely commercial rivals to actually 
make me think it's a it's a good trade to force people to pay for it. And complicating matters is the fact that RTE also takes in commercial advertisements. Yes. It's a competitor to other media companies in this country. And you could make the argument, Michael, that a lot of what RTE does would be done by other people, perhaps better, if they didn't have to directly compete with RTE for advertising revenue. Is there, isn't there also an argument, Gary, that you could make that since they do receive this very substantial amount of money every year in the form of license fees, and because they are the national broadcaster, they also have a certain, shall we say, unmerited but granted brand weight or brand value, that they operate as a distorting factor within the market. That because they have all of this money, for example, more much more than than other groups, and because of the position that they already, the dominant position they already offer, that they they get a section of the advertising revenue which perhaps they wouldn't otherwise. That this affects the costs of other people operating in the market. Say for when it comes to hiring, uh, and I use the word carefully, talent. When we see the figures that end up being paid for people like Pat Kenny or that are being paid still by RT to the, to, to oh, I don't know, Tuberty or whoever, that those figures are distorted by the fact that they are supported by uh, a license fee. And if we take the license money out of this equation, that the Irish media market would resort itself. I think you could make a strong argument for that, Michael, that the wages RT pays to its stars because it says it needs to stop them from seeking work elsewhere, by which they primarily mean in the British markets, uh, possibly America, Canadian markets, is mostly totally unwarranted because these people aren't good enough. I mean, the people who are good enough in Irish television to make it in those markets went to those markets. And also, I mean, they would have to do really well in those markets to make more money than they're making here. When you look at actually what people get paid in similar similar media markets, say, in the United Kingdom, that they are being very well paid. Well, you know, it would be harmful to lose them, Michael. Can you imagine your daily life without Ryan Tuberty? Uh, I, I can I can imagine that with very little effort at all, since my daily life exists utterly without Ryan Tuberty as, it, as we speak. The part of the report that I enjoyed the most, actually, from... And I will, if I find this thing, I will mention it in the next podcast, and we'll put up a link to it, because I'm actually interested to see how bad it is is where they say, well, one of the reasons why RTE is losing money is because, you know, they lose 50 million a year. That's their estimate in license fee revenues um, through evasion. And the growing number of households who do not have to pay the TV license but can still consume RTE programming on the RTE player. Wow. I have a feeling that was written by someone who's never actually tried to use the RTE player. Because the RTE player for, ooh, since its inception has been total shit. The only things that are actually playable on it are the ads. The ads never buffer, do they? The ads never buffer or stall, Michael, or simply stop working randomly. That's always work. I don't know anyone who uses the RTE player because anyone who was ever interested in using the RTE player tried to use it and realised you can't. Also, I don't really understand the use of the word loss here. 50 million... Well, you see, here's the thing, Michael. They want this change so that just because you don't have a TV doesn't mean you can avoid paying the license. So by that metric, all they've done is look at how many households are in the country and just said, well, if we changed it, we could charge all of them. Therefore, we have lost 50 million 
because we can't do that. I'm still struggling to see how this lost. It's not like somebody went into their bank account and took 50, bill, 50 million out. This is 50 million in revenue that they, you could, I, I'm sure you could create other scenarios where they would have, they would have otherwise have earned 50 million, but they didn't. If RT had exclusive rights to the Super Bowl every year, uh, the advertising revenue for that could probably easily be 50 million. But bizarrely, um, the Irish National Broadcaster does not have exclusive rights to the Super Bowl, but there you go. But still, it's 50 million they could otherwise have had. And sorry, it's just a silly thing, it's a way of saying that's revenue that they failed to gather. And this is just returning to the old proposal from, who was it, Rory Quinn? That wanted, what was the, the electronic tax, the electronic screen tax? Which basically, even if you didn't have a television, but you had a computer, and on that computer, oh yeah. It's it's like the VRT you were giving out about the other day. It's just a tax. Just it has no sense in itself. It's just something they're designed to raise revenue. That's the same here. It's just that this is you could argue this is a hypothecated revenue, in that it's going to go to one specific government department, which is RTA, and they want to find some way of generating a specific amount. So they're going to say, well, what can we tax? reasonably well computers if you have a computer you can watch tv on it but what if i mean does that mean everybody has a telephone would be subjected to this tax the the young people these days don't even watch it on computers don't even watch it even on their ipads it's on their telephone because they've got decent eyesight god love them god this is great that they can watch their telly on their iphones or their androids so that would be uh tax it's once upon a time, it was believed that if you were a big, grown-up, developed country, you used, you would have to have a national airline. So we had Aer Lingus and British and British Overseas um, BOAC, before, which was before British, British Airways, then I can't remember it was, it was the Imperial, British Imperial Airways, and you had Sabina and Alitalia and El Al and Lot and whatever it was. Well, that's not really believed anymore while many of these lines still exist as brands, they're certainly no longer government-owned, and they're not attached necessarily to one particular country. Some of them have gone away. Sabina, the Belgian line, no longer exists. Alitalia is regularly threatened with extinction. For some reason, in this day and age, we still stick to this notion of the necessity to have this kind of public service broadcast. I think, in part, it's because of our geography. Because we live so close to the United Kingdom and because we are so continually exposed to the BBC, we think that we have to have a BBC. And we like to think that RT is a little baby BBC. Now, if you talk to Tories in England, they're all constantly in a state of flux and outrage at the awfulness of the political bias within the BBC. Well, I tell cross the cross the St George's Channel, you, you you can find something a little bit worse. But it's hard to justify at, in, at this at this juncture. Uh, I, I, basically, it is a forced tax for people that are not consuming the product, and that is, of course, the problem. When Orte does something that is offensive to someone's beliefs, deeply offensive, and you can say, "Well, you don't have a right to not be offended," but at the same time. You apparently have to pay to be offended. Yeah, that's the tricky thing. I mean, I I would take a reasonably purist line on the free speech stuff, and you certainly don't have a right not to be offended. However, I would be more sympathetic to the line that you 
do have a right not to be forced to pay for someone to offend you. I think that's not unreasonable. No, I mean, my the particular reason I wanted to bring this up is because it is not mentioned in any of the reporting I've seen, and I assume it'll be reported more as we go on, because it's about RTE and it somehow got into the media, Michael, which means it's probably going to get further in the media. And no one is mentioning that this company lists RTE as a client, which is to say, at the very least, at some time in the past, there was a financial relationship between RTE and this company, which has come out, and as an independent voice, said exactly what RTE has been saying to politicians for years. Mirabile dictu. There may still be a financial interest there. We don't know. We just know they were client at some stage. They're still listed as a client. And that's not to say that just because a consultancy firm has a client that they can't produce good work on an area. But it means there is an immediate conflict of interest. And if you go to the listing of the team on this consultancy firm, Michael, it's four people. Large firms, you can start talking about Chinese walls and, you know, totally autonomous regions. Mm. This is not a big company. You can't do that. So there may be no issue. The report may be perfectly fine. But it certainly seems that you should tell people, firm says everything RTE says is correct. You may want the subheading of firm accepts money from RTE. Well, Well, I suppose what we we, we should hold ourselves in readiness for the actual report itself to be published. And you never know, Gary. We may be surprised. There may be a disclaimer or a, a declaration of interest there, which tells us precisely that. And if there is, I'm sure we shall return and tell the people. However, I wouldn't hold my breath in that expectation. But here's the interesting thing. The, the report was completed last October. Right. And was apparently sent to the Oireachtas in recent weeks. Yes. I just can't find a, a record of it. Now, this was last minute. Could have easily missed something. As I said, if I did, I'll put it up or put it on the next podcast. But uh, we will see if this is a public-facing report. Last October? God, that's, and it's only just seeping into the wider press now. Took its time, didn't it? You wanted to go off at the best time. Such as, you know, the very start of silly season, Michael, where it was most likely to get coverage. Still a long hold on a report. It is. So on to Zapone. Well, actually, it's no longer about Zapone at all. It's now about leaking from the cabinet, which is actually, for all that we've kind of, over the course of this government, and to a degree the last Fine Gael government as well, grown to just accept it as perfectly fine, that it happened basically in real time. Still quite a serious matter. In theory, yeah. It's not like it's just a parliamentary party meeting. It's just considered its own special thing because of the, well, constitutional status of the cabinet. Well, cabinet meetings are... Cabinet meetings are confidential. And cabinet minutes and cabinet notes are not are, are, are not made public. And they're held under secrecy rules. I mean, it's like depending on what they're just talking about, it may be, but certainly the 30-year rule, 40-year, 50-year rule apply. And you have to tend to wait at least a generation before you can get to see what the cabinet was talking about. And that makes perfect political sense, because otherwise, if you're going to have a proper debate or discussion at cabinet, you want people to feel that they're going to be able to say things that nobody is going to hang them out for the next day in the media or the press. And they're not going to be held responsible for necessarily by their... By their voters, so you have to be able to say things that, to use the phrase the young people use, you have to feel like you're in a safe space. 
and if it's being live tweeted, you're not going to feel that. It's also meant to protect a principle called collective responsibility. Yeah. Or sometimes called cabinet collective responsibility. But the general understanding of it is that if you are in the cabinet, you must defend the policies of the cabinet to the utmost. Uh, sorry, the policies of the government to the utmost. And it doesn't matter what you say in the cabinet if you're privately against it. You are collectively responsible for the decisions of the government and must defend them. And you can't do that if people start leaking private conversations you had where you perhaps you know, expressed disagreement. Because then you have to come out and people go, well, you don't believe that. Yeah, notionally here, we don't have government by a party or by a, a Taoiseach. Rather, the Taoiseach is the chairman or the chairperson of the cabinet. We have cabinet government. And cabinet votes on proposals. And if it gets through cabinet, then it becomes policy. So, what happened? Obviously, someone leaked the Zappone story. We had a, a situation came about, when the Independent has now reported on it, that a junior minister basically set up a ruse to try and get the person who had leaked the Zappone information to reveal themselves. And this minister lied to a senior minister, saying that he had been on radio and that he had made disparaging comments about Zephone and uh, about Simon Coveney. And a couple of minutes later, this junior minister received a call from a journalist. Unfortunately, that minister had never been on radio. It was a lie to see if the senior minister, being the person who was leaking things, mm -hmm. would inform journalists of this. And he did. That junior minister then went to Leo Varadkar with this. And it's... I believe the phrase used in the Indo was that Leo was disappointed, but not angry. <laughs> yeah. And the general belief is that they have successfully pinpointed the person who leaked the Zephone material, although that senior minister is still denying it. Now, the information available to us from the Independent tells us a couple of things. And they, they could be wrong about this. And it's understood that the person who is being accused internally is denying it. So we cannot say for certain they did it. We cannot. But what we know is that they are in Fine Gael, so that knocks out all of the Fine Gael, Fall and, and Greens, that they are male, so that knocks out Madigan, Humphreys, McEntee and uh, Nocton, that they are a senior minister, which knocks out nearly all of them, because of the males, most are actually minister for state, and that it's not Leo, and it couldn't be Simon Coveney. And the problem you have there is that leaves only two people. Yes. Simon Harris and Pascal Donoghue. Now, there's other things the Indo say, like the person who did this is understood to be gearing up for a leadership campaign, which Pascal is not doing because it's generally considered that Pascal is like one foot out the door on the expectation he's going to lose his seat. He's shopping his CV around Europe and around the world. Which leaves us with Simon Harris who we absolutely cannot say is the person responsible for this leak. But if he were responsible, there would be a strong argument that Michal Martin should sack him. There might be a strong argument, but that would involve the idea of Strong and Michal, Mar Michal Martin in the same space, and that seems unlikely. Um, it was suggested to me recently that at the very beginning of the whole suppone brouhaha, that the real strong arm leadership move 
on Michal Martin's uh, behalf, rather than go around to people and complain that he'd been blindsided by it, as we were saying in the last podcast, which only makes him look weak. I was saying the best thing to do would be to shut up. And what per- one, said to me, one person said to me, he said, no, what he should have done was sack Kovne for doing it and throw it down to Leo and said, okay, you going to bring the government down for this? I don't think so. And he would have established himself as the alpha in the pack and transformed his, his, the perception of himself, perhaps, in the public image. However, he certainly didn't do that. And I cannot, in a month of Sunday, see him at this stage sacking any Fine Gael senior minister, whether it was Simon Harris or whether it was Pascal Dunham or any of them, on the back of this leak. I mean, honestly, can you, can, you, can you honestly think that there's a circumstance where Michal would do this? No. Michal is Taoiseach. And if he were to do this, there would at least be the question of if the government will be brought down. But I, I don't think Martin is going to do anything to endanger Michal Martin being Taoiseach. And the problem there is you've now gotten to a point where what exactly is the point of Martin? He's just an appendage. He's occupying the office, but that's all he's doing. And he's, offend- he's essentially sent the message to Leo, I mean, if Leo hadn't already got the message, and I think Leo had, that there's not a lot that they can't do that would effectively undermine either Michal Martin and or Fianna Fáil, that there will be actually any form of retribution from Michal Martin. So let's just look at what happened here. Multiple Fine Gael ministers were aware of this appointment and they sprang it on Martin at a cabinet meeting basically as a done deal. That on its own is an issue. But I think the far more serious issue is actually the leaking from the cabinet. We've seen what happened with parliamentary meetings where they're basically being live tweeted. You can't run a government on that basis. There needs to be a space for politicians, particularly, to have candid discussions on topics without fear of basically people pointing out what they're saying. And we can say that that's not very transparent. But the truth of the matter is those conversations need to happen. And they're going to happen somewhere. And if it can't happen in the cabinet room or with the cabinet table, it's going to happen in a hallway. And there will be no record of it. Why was the leak made? What was the point of the leak? So this is also a weird one. For Pascal, assuming it was Pascal, I don't see why Pascal would do this to begin with. So let's focus on Harris. Harris supported Coveney in the last leadership campaign. Harris is obviously gearing up to try and take the Finnegan leadership. Coveney might might have been an issue there, or maybe he just wanted to weaken Coveney and also make Leo look a bit bad as well. Because don't forget, Leo got involved in this as well, because Leo was aware of it. In which case, I, I don't know why he would bother, because a current reckoning from people I've talked to is the likelihood is that Simon Harris will be the next leader of Fine Gael. So if you're going to win, why cheat? Mm, well, I don't know, scorpions and frogs, scary scorpions and frogs. Um, I don't know. If something occurs to you and it seems to be, oh, God, that would be a good wheeze. You have such a good idea that you can't help yourself. But I, do, I don't see that it does anybody any particular good here. I certainly think right now, if the, when there is speculation about the the leak, and the leak seems to be a bad thing, that having your name attached to it, rightly or wrongly, is not going to do your your prospects any great good. Although, again, I wonder how long these perceptions last and to what extent the people who will be voting in 
a leadership election would care. I mean, well, the team, I suppose, the TDs would probably care, and the TDs are a, a significant, or the parliamentary party is a significant part of the uh, of the electorate. I mean, let's face it, what, Coveney got 70% of the membership, didn't he? Something like that, but got hammered by the parliamentary party. So uh, Leo sailed in on the back of the parliamentary party vote. So maybe if there's a perception within the parliamentary party that this is a bad thing to do, that that would damage the person linked to the league. There's also the question, which is purely a curiosity on my behalf, which is, who's the junior minister who had the cunning plan? Because it is a cunning plan. Well, he set a trap. He set a bear trap, and or a tiger trap, and uh, the minister allegedly fell right into it, whichever, whichever minister it was. Shall we say, I have heard particular things. In the same way, Michael, I assume we've all heard particular things as to exactly who is suspected of leaking this and exactly what that person may have done previously and, you know, accusations of undermining the party and a degree of, uh, shall we say, sociopathic self-indulgence. Oh, God. But we can't name names or say exactly what happened there because those things might be untrue. And more than that, Michael, they might be defamatory. Were we to say any particular person had engaged in that sort of behaviour over a long period of time? And I certainly wouldn't say that. Absolutely not. Let us both take this point that no one in Cabinet has... Done anything like that, ever. To our knowledge. No, no, ever. I mean, that would just... I'm willing to go on record here and say that has never happened. And I don't believe that it's a question of our knowledge or not. Or not. It's just that it never happened. I'm confident in that belief. I don't get the point of Michael Martin at this point. Surely we could just put him in a corner office. And give him like a revolving chair. And he would be as as good and as bad as he is now. And occasionally we can just get him to sign things. Yeah, but you give him a window. You, you want him to be able to look out. Maybe you give him a you give him a, a subscription. Well, probably the government has a subscription already to the Irish Times. And he could spend the morning doing the crosser. And he could spend the afternoon doing the simplex. And then he can go home. And I think that would be a nice life. I'm just very curious about what Michal Martin does on an average day. And you ever heard the um, the phrase, Michael, that motion is different than progress? Yeah. It's like a, a hamster in a wheel has motion. It's just not going anywhere. <laughs> and I often, when we... When, like, I remember Simon Harris, for instance, there was reports on um, what his day-to-day affairs were like just after the referendum. And they're talking about how late he left the office and how hard he worked. And then you look at the actual policy output of the department and you do sort of go, you're not fucking achieving anything though, are you? And I'm just curious how much of Michal Martin's day is motion and how much is progress. Actually, I'm curious how much of Michal Martin's political career will in review have been progress and not just motion. We are effectively being led by a hamster and a wheel. If we're being led by Michal, and well, I don't know if we are. I think Michal, I think Michal is doing what he's doing. I think Leo is doing what he's doing. I think Leo is doing it rather better. How much do you think the other the Finnefall ministers are freaking out about this? Well, does it make any difference? I mean, they may be. But if we go back to the results of the, the by-election, right? And... They got 4.6%. And you and I had been speculating before what would constitute a really bad result. And they were, what were they getting? 8%? They were polling it around 8%, I think. I think about 11%. 
I don't mean nationally. I mean in the in the constituency. Oh yeah, somewhere around that. Yeah, and I would say to you, you know, eight percent. Mm, it's not great, but you know, it's a not a good constituency and whatever. Seven percent, six percent. I said to you, well, I wonder what happens if it goes under five. Does that actually light the touch paper? So I, it comes out. It's four point six. And we talked about this in the podcast at the time. And I, I got on the phone and I sp- spoke to a, f- a few people in the party, and everybody was absolutely shocked and horrified and gobsmacked and dismayed. And this is awful. You can blame the candidate up to a certain point, but this is just dreadful. And then the next day, there were headlines saying that there was a move on against me Hall. But fairly quickly, even by that evening, it was becoming obvious that by the, the TD say, well, I'm not happy with the party direction. I'm not happy with me all, but I'm not going to vote against him. But I'm not going to put my name down to a vote of no confidence. I'm not actually going to do anything. So I think after that really, really dreadful showing in the by-election, it became clear that barring some kind of absolutely cataclysmic meltdown, these people aren't going to do anything. They may, as you say, be losing their lives and pulling out their hair and sitting in the corner of some bar somewhere with their COVID passports given out to each other about Michal Martin. But there's no sense that these people have a plan. We, we've talked before about how if people hate you, at least there's an emotion. And yes, you, those people probably aren't going to vote for you and may actively campaign against you, but you're at least relevant. We now have a story involves a Fianna Fáil Taoiseach who is effectively irrelevant to the story itself of an appointment at cabinet level. And Martin is just being treated as a sort of, and he was there. Some of our listeners may be old enough to remember the days when Charlie Hawhey was leader of Fianna Fáil and Taoiseach. Um, there was a program called Scrap Saturday and um, Dermot O'Leary, who played Father Ted, used to do a, a, a version of Hawhey talking to PJ Mara, who was Hawhey's uh, political advisor and his great handler, great man. And it was this, the line, I think it was, was it from, I can't, was it from Tiberius? If they don't love them, I don't care, let them fear me. And you'd hear this would be you'd hear Hawhey's voice basically articulating. Ah, I don't care if they love me as long as they fear me. Do they fear me, Mara? Yes, boss. Now nobody can pretend for a moment that anybody in the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party has the same kind. I, I, I think it was true that there were people who were afraid of Hawhey, genuinely afraid. There's a wonderful, well, not wonderful, humiliating, rather horrible description of a famous description of I think it was a uh, a farmers union farmers or farmers unions were going in to see Hawhey about something to do with EU policy on agriculture and Michal and Michael Kennedy, Dr. Michael Kennedy who the Minister for Agriculture at the time was left standing by the door and basically and and Hawhey said to him if if this goes on, he was going to Defenestrate O'Leary and all our Kennedy and get all Kennedy to just smile bleakly during the the whole humiliation, because that's what you had to put up with. Hawhey. that was how he treated his ministers. He was he was Napoleon, he was Tiberius, 
the point there is, yes, there are many, many stories of how Hahi treated his ministers. And the difference between pissing off Hahi and actually doing something Hahi liked. But when you hear some of the stories about things Martin has done to his TDs, there is. He can be a deeply unpleasant man when he wants to be. But he's never been able to get the other parts of Hahi. Like the achievements, or the ability to actually motivate people. The charisma, the vision. He'll bollock you, but he can't do anything else. And the problem there is, as he loses power and becomes increasingly irrelevant, and becomes, you know, there's generals who would go mad in the 19th century, and they would just be left with their maps and their toy soldiers moving things around the map, and everyone would just leave them to it, because... It didn't matter what they thought or what they did. As he becomes that, what does it even matter if he bollocks you? What's he going to do? Yeah, except that if you had a general in in, if, in, those, in those stories, the 19th century, even the 20th, that if they made some really serious cock-up, or indeed series of cock-ups that seemed to actually affect the, the army, as it were, rather than put them away with their maps they would some they would say they would put them into a room by themselves with a desk and a pistol and say right well you know what has to be done i don't see that happening anytime soon either but anyway i, I suppose what we should we should see as this thing develops if we find out first of all who the leaker was we shall see if there are consequences to the leaker we shall see if we find out who the leaker of the leak uh, was because that could be fun too. Um, there's lots. I think this story, considering we are as it, we are now into August and there is nothing else happening in the world except the Olympics and COVID, so there'll be plenty of ink still to be used on this story. And I who knows, we may come back to it again, Gary. I think the other interesting thing, and this actually relates to Leo, is that the way the Indo is reporting this. Leo is more disappointed than angry. But they say he asked, what can he do about it? He can't sack the minister because the minister denies it. Now, firstly, he can't sack anyone. It's like Martin has the sole ability to do that. That's a purely technical point. On a practical level, Finnegan ministers serve because Leo has asked them to. But technically, it's, it's Martin who has to get rid of them. To which I would say, who gives a fuck if he denies it? Yeah, it's not, it's our court of law. It's not a court of law. He doesn't need to prove this beyond a reasonable doubt. He needs to have a well-founded, solid suspicion. In fact, he has to have, he will have more than that privately. He will be sure to a fairly decent degree who did it. And if he is convinced in himself of who did it, well, then you make a decision. And if you get it wrong, so what? But the interesting thing there is it, is it paints Leo in a particular way as well. There's a little bit of the Michal Martin after, what can I do? Well, actually, there's quite a lot you can do. There are things it might be awkward for you to do directly because of the whole Gareth investigation issue, but you could have Martin sack him. What Leo, I imagine, means by the question, what can I do, is what can I do that isn't going to cause me any hassle? Also, maybe Leo's just perfectly happy doing nothing anyway. Maybe this all works for him. It is deep, dark, strategic approach to whatever this government is. And the fact that he will himself be Taoiseach, presumably, so I mean, this government doesn't just fall apart like a 
badly made pair of shoes after a heavy shower of rain. He will eventually be Taoiseach himself, and this works for him. It'll be interesting to see if, uh, as they get towards taking the seat, if Fine Gael decides that Fine Fáil's argument that she can't have a leadership um, challenge now holds up. <laughs> or if some of the lads in Fine Gael actually go, no, actually, you know what, we're going to do it. And you know, Fine Fáil, you're just going to sit and you're going to take it. Because that's what you do now. That's what you do. I don't know, you might be right. Maybe it's just in your... It's better to have inside the, him inside the tent pissing out than it is um, outside the tent pissing in. And a point that I think should be made here is one of the reasons why you leak to journalists, particularly if you have highly sensitive information, is because you'll want favours from those journalists later. That there is a bit of a quid pro quo here. And if someone had been at the cabinet and had been leaking large amounts of information to a variety of journalists some of which had been published and some of which was just given to them on background so they're aware of it, that person probably has quite a number of favours saved up. And were you to get rid of him, he might make that very uncomfortable. Well, I'm sure no decent, upstanding Irish politician would refrain from doing what would be the right thing simply out of fear that they get some bad publicity in the press. Gary, so we can discount that. The government has said that he is, or the government has said, <laughs> the Tarnishta, Leo Varadkar, has said that um, the government wants to know more about this four-day week. And they have dedicated the summer to researching it. They have also dedicated, I think, €150,000 to researching it. And I just have no idea why the government gives a fuck about this. Well, there has been talk, I don't know if it's being effectuated, that the Dublin City Council had a vote on some kind of a trial or something here, that they're going to try uh, some form of this. This is in the context, obviously, that people are now getting used to new ways of working, with working from home rather than going to their office, or mixed, mixed bathing, so sometimes in the office, sometimes at home. And in that context, maybe we need to reevaluate in a fundamental, radical way the very way we think about work, Gary. And on that basis, well, why five days? Why not? Why not four? I'm possibly not the best person to discuss this because I've never worked an office job. I've always worked consultancy jobs or in campaigns or where I was the primary driver of the organisation. Hours and days and how much you're meant to work have never really mattered to me. So maybe there is a pressing need for this at governmental level, and I just can't see it because every time people talk to me about this, they keep saying, well, you know, you can get as much done in four days as you can in five days. To which I would say, well, no, I can't. But maybe people who work in, let's say, the civil service, who have very clearly defined jobs, can. I don't know. Yeah, I'm... I did work in an office with with a rather different kind where I used to open the office at 8 o'clock and finish at half past 9 at night sometimes and then at half 1 on Saturdays. So again, I'm not massively connected to the notion of working four days a week, 9 till 5. I do think it's true that there are certainly offices where people don't work in the most efficient way possible. But that's not to say that 
you can't look at it and say, well, we've, people are spreading out work over five days that actually they could more effectively, they could do it in four. And then that gives an extra day off. It may be that actually those little breaks and those little pauses and those little inefficiencies are in, in fact important. But do you know, I would much prefer, Gary, if this was being done by private companies who want to investigate whether or not this is going to be a more productive or more efficient way of them doing their business. And I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but there's always the worry that when these things start to happen at a governmental level, whether it starts in the city council or if it starts with the civil service, that this will be done, I'm sure, in conjunction with all the stakeholders, Gary, and the stakeholders will include the unions, and, we, and there has been considerable interest amongst certain trades unions and the ideas of scaling back from the five to the four day week that fairly quickly you go from somebody doing a one hundred fifty thousand quid worth study within the civil service on it to it becoming a proposal in a manifesto for government in an election down the road that we introduce the four day week across the economy and it's not no longer an interesting idea for private companies to try out for themselves, but rather something by, mandated by government em, employment legislation. Now, maybe that's just wild, paranoid thinking. But Well, the interesting thing is the, the major campaign group for this in Ireland is the four-day week uh, Ireland campaign. Yeah. And they say that their medium-term objective is to move the towards the four-day week being the standard work arrangement across the economy with no loss of pay. That's public and private. But then, Michael, you look at the people involved, and you know when you just see a list of people and you immediately have a sort of, hmm. So, of the people important enough, Four Day Week Ireland wants to notify you about them. There's multiple trade unions. Friends of the Earth Ireland. Okay, good. And uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland. Oh, well, I'm reassured. I withdraw all of my previous worries and objections. If you said to me, Friends of the Earth and the National Women's Council are involved. The one name I, I did note that is actually quite funny is uh, Phelan McDonald. Phelan McDonald is the director of um, the ICE Group. And would you like to know what the ICE Group does, Michael? ICE? It's a recruitment agency. Oh. <laughs> I've, I, I think he may have been actually on the radio talking about his own experience with his company of doing this and I mean this is not the this is not a new idea Gary this has been doing the rounds in Europe and the United States for God a few decades now I, I have the feeling that if it was a brilliant idea whose time had come it would have sort of broken out by now but this maybe new technology maybe new types of communication maybe post-pandemic reassessment of the necessity to be in an office environment. Maybe all of these things have come together and said, well, you know what, maybe this is the time. But like I say, I would have preferred if it had been a private company going off to do it and find out at its own cost by itself. And also, without the pressures that might come with uh, other, shall we say, stakeholders for whom the absolute productivity and profitability of the company isn't the only question on their minds. It seems to me that there, there are groups involved in this, Gary, for whom global productivity of the enterprise is not the only thing they care about. I did enjoy that uh, the National Women's Council of Ireland backs this campaign 
because it is better for women, Michael, and that's for the number. But all I could think when I read it is just the National Women's Council of Ireland or Women's Council of Ireland can no longer even define what a woman is. <laughs> How can they do anything that's better for women? Well, I, I, I imagine soon the, even the idea of using the word woman is going to be just passe. There's that guy in the School of Medicine in California who was lecturing in endocrinology to medical students. Do you see, remember it was last week and he, he apologised. He apologised to his students because he inadvertently implied but when he when he used the term pregnant women, that only women could become pregnant. And he obviously knows that that's not true. It's not only women that can become pregnant. And the line that I think both of us found the most impressive in his statement of regret and apology was that the worst thing you can do in the world is to be offensive to someone. And you know, obviously he didn't want to do the worst thing in the world. So, there you go. I mean, that's really his own fault. How so? If you go to people and you do that sort of incredibly defensive, snivelling, sort of, I accept what I'm doing is problematic, of course you're going to suffer for it. Because the people who want to make you suffer for it will realise you're weak. And that'll incentivize them to do it. And the people who might otherwise have defended you will really just think you brought this on yourself by trying to placate these people. And so you end up just being, you have no defender. Because why would anyone defend you when you seem to just want it to happen? Well, exactly. I was going to say, why, why should they defend you when you're not willing to defend yourself? Why would anybody else come to your aid when you're lying down in front of your attackers saying, please, please don't beat me anymore unless you really want to? And if you do, well, I, I accept that because I, I probably really deserved it anyway. But there you go. That's a whole other kettle of fish. The, we should remember, of course, that the National Women's Council has some form in this area, Gary. You remember that <laughs> that fantastic list of uh, things that they wanted, which they published before the last election, which uh, Fianna, Fáil <laughs> Fianna Fáil headquarters had received and the press office sent out with instructions to everybody to sign it and the fact was it seemed to be likely that neither the press office and certainly not the TDs actually bothered to read it. I remember being moderately annoyed because I'm pretty sure I was the person who broke that story and then it got into the mainstream but no one ever referenced that we were the people who first reported it. It's like I would have just enjoyed you know people knowing that we had done this. Anyway I suppose. Are we going to be back on uh, this whole thing with bank holidays and some things has thrown me? Are we back on Wednesday now? We will be back on Wednesday and then Friday and then Sunday. Gosh, when you say it like that, it sounds like a life sentence. Anyway, until then, I suppose, have a good weekend. Well, whatever, the weekend is over. Have a good bank holiday and enjoy yourselves. All the best.